everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Untangling the Lines. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Duffy, and today I'm joined again by Danny. Hey, everyone. It's Danny. Today we're going to talk about opioids. There's a lot of options out there, and I think it's helpful for everyone to know what opioids do, how they work, what their side effects, and when to choose one over another. So, you know, from the technician perspective, we use opioids in, I guess, a a couple different situations. Uh, The most common one is just adding it into our our pre-medication, depending on what we're going to be doing for a procedure. Uh, The second most common time, I guess, is is during a procedure, you know, intra-op or intra-procedure. Uh, whether or not it's, it's giving boluses or potentially afterwards on some kind of a, a CRI situation. Uh, you know, we use them for, I guess, pain relief, but also the side effect of sedation. Yeah, uh, we're looking for that, that spinal pain relief in the central The analgesia and the, and the anesthesia. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, there's a whole world of them, and, you know, we have a, a couple different cho- choices to choose from. So I guess we should just go into what the difference is. Yeah, absolutely. So when you hear about opioids, you generally hear them with response to their three main types of receptors. There's technically four, but we don't have to worry about that one. So the three are mu, that's M-U, it's a Greek letter, and it's usually written as like a little U, kappa, and delta. So mu is probably the most common of the receptors when you're thinking about opioids in the sense that most of your sedation, your analgesia, your reduction of sympathetic outflow, nausea even as a side effect, that's typically mediated by the mu receptor. And I think it's the one that we talk about the most. Then you have the kappa receptor, which interestingly in birds is actually much more common, not common, but like more widely dispersed in the CNS. Hmm than in mammals, but the kappa receptor is, has a bigger effect on sedation, but doesn't act so much in the uh, pain relief type action of the mu receptor. So we think of kappa as more of sedation, whereas mu's as more of our analgesics. And then lastly, you have delta, which I think for us clinically doesn't really matter that much, but interestingly, the delta opioid receptor has a lot to do with your mood and kind of probably the euphoria that you feel, let's say with morphine, might actually be mediated uh, a lot by the delta receptor. Now, are you saying that every opioid hits all three of these just in differing amounts, or do the opioids uh, spe- you know, go to one of these three categories specifically? I think it depends on the opioid itself. So morphine is the, let's say the the godfather right, of right. all the... the OG of opioids. Exactly. And so that is the compound that's essentially distilled from poppy plants and opium. Mm-hmm. And morphine acts at all three receptors. But instead, when you're looking at the synthetic opioids like fentanyl, methadone, those tend to act more specifically on one receptor versus, versus another. Um, I think we all always have to remember that most drugs are not as specific as we like to categorize them. Mm-hmm. And there's always, a lot of them are messy. Ketamine is a great example. So they can have some overlap. Yeah. But for the most part, they tend to be more specific. So I think we should start by discussing kind of opioids in general. And we can talk about the different body systems and how opioids generally kind of affect each one. 
So, you know, the first one, I guess we always think about is cardiovascular. You know, how does a drug affect uh, the heart, I guess? And, you know, with opioids, we'll typically see a little bit of bradycardia. You know, a lot of the times we mix them with something else. So I think it just compounds the the effect that we see. Right, when you're combining like a butorphanol with dexmedetomidine. Exactly, yeah. Uh, or, you know, a more painful patient that could be getting a morphine dex or a, a methadone dex or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I think if you add it with an anticholinergic, you know, the, I think the effects are going to be pretty minimal as far as cardiovascular changes. So at, let's say you're using a very high dose. Um, let's say you're doing spinal surgery and you have the fentanyl at 0.3 micrograms per cake per minute, which is 18 per hour, mm-hmm. depending on your institution as to which you use. But if you're running your fentanyl at 18, even if the dog is not reacting and kind of independent of other things, you might actually see the heart rate come down, mm-hmm. which then you can just fix that with a anticholinergic and kind of bring it back to normal. But I think the doses that we were using in the wards is so is relatively small. I don't think anyone would put a dog at 18 in the wards. Usually you're t- looking at three right. micrograms per keg per hour. Yeah. And when I say wards, I guess I mean the ICU, just like not in surgery. So it sounds like what you're saying, and it's like any drug, that uh, side effects can be compounded or, or increased, obviously based on giving increased doses of that yeah, drug. We call that dose dependency. Okay. Yeah. And that's that seems to definitely be a, like an, a component of this bradycardia with, with opioids. So I think moving on, the next thing we tend to think about with opioids is respiratory depression. And that's a major factor in humans. And for some reason, our veterinary populations are relatively less sensitive to the respiratory effects of opioids than humans. We don't really exactly know why, although if a dog is on a fentanyl CRI in the ICU or on a methadone intermittent injections of of whichever, we don't usually have them on a respiratory watch. Okay, so what you're saying is that the, the side effects are different between humans and veterinary. Yeah. We see less respiratory depression in animals than we do in humans, but it is still there. Yeah, it is still there. And I think under anesthesia, I think you do see it, especially you start to see your end tidal CO2, that capnogram. Start to creep up. Yep, exactly. So ideally in the in the body, there are certain receptors that that sense the chemical levels of CO2 in your blood. And as in CO2 is always being produced in the body just because your body is doing body things and having cellular metabolism. It's a sign of life, right? And so you take a breath, you eliminate CO2, and say you're at 40, and then your body is doing stuff. And let's say your CO2 goes up to 41, 42, 43, and that is enough of a change that actually stimulates you to breathe again. So you take a breath and you eliminate CO2. And that's actually the biggest driver for breathing is actually this fluctuation or the undulation of CO2 in your in your blood. And it is the opioid, especially the mu receptor, that actually inhibits those chemical receptors where you have to have a lot more CO2 to trigger them to start the breathing pattern. And so if normally you would breathe around 40, now 40 is boring, 45, meh, and then maybe your new set point is 50. Mm -hmm. But if you think of there's a certain slope 
where your minute ventilation, so the amount you breathe, is linearly related to the amount of CO2. The higher CO2, the more you breathe, and it puts you right back exactly down to baseline. Mm -hmm. If you have low CO2, you breathe less, and then that allows the CO2 to collect, and you move up the line, and then it brings you back to baseline. With opioids, not only is your set points moved from 40, let's say, to 45, again, it's dose-dependent, so it's hard to predict exactly, but also the slope of that line is depressed. So even the change in the amount you breathe for every change in CO2 is now less. So both effects kind of summate, especially when you have other drugs on board with your anesthetic, like isoflurane, also very potent respiratory depressants, where these effects really kind of get compounded. So you can, if you're on too high a dose of an opioid, let's say intraoperatively, you do need to be watching your your respiratory signs, I guess, to yeah. just to make sure that your patient is not becoming too respiratory depressed and yeah, you may have to address massive. it or lower your dose or something. Yeah, exactly. And if you're intubated, it's something that's very easy to manage. Mm-hmm. You can always assist with a breath uh, with the rebreathing bag. It's when your patients are not intubated where that can be a little bit like a harder situation to Right, to deal because with. you have no access to their airway. Exactly. And sometimes the patient's individual depression with an opioid is pretty individually variable. Um, also, it seems like cats don't really care. Cats seem to breathe regardless, where it seems like dogs are, in general, more sensitive. Also, some dogs will be apneic, meaning not breathing at all, but will be moving under anesthesia. And they're the, that one patient is just particularly sensitive. Whereas another, like it's not something that you run into very commonly, but others won't seem as effective. So that's actually a really good point. So you're saying is that uh, just because they're not, just because they're not breathing great, doesn't mean that they're deep. You know, I'm using air quotes, but quote unquote deep under anesthesia. Uh, well, it could. It could, but but it also may not be. You're saying that they could still potentially be. Um, light or yeah. or on the lower or, range of yeah. uh, of their anesthetic plane, yeah. but yet still be so sensitive to the opioid that they're respiratory depressed. Exactly. And I think that can make it a little bit complicated because you start having conflicting information. Right. And especially if you don't have a gas analyzer, um, it's kind of sometimes makes it challenging to know where you are. Or, or what specifically is causing the reaction that you're seeing? Is it your, your ISO, your, exactly. your opioids, anything else? Yeah. I, th- I mean, in the end, we still go to jaw tone. You can try to use your eye position. If, if you can get to the face, if you're doing eye surgery, it's usually not yep. allowed. Um, and then you kind of get caught off guard because you keep trying to decrease your anesthetic plane or decrease your ISO because my patient's apneic. They must be deep. Right. And then now they're on the floor (laughs) because they jumped off the table. And it seems like you're either at zero or 60. And without using a ventilator or something to maintain a, well, proper uptake of inhalant to maintain your anesthesia, um, you you tend, those cases can be very challenging because you feel like you're either at zero or at 60. There's no in between. What's your experience as far as animals who are, you know, sensitive to opioids versus the ones that just... Handle it, handle it normally. Yeah, I just put them on a ventilator. Okay. Would because you? But you would say that that's the, the minority of your. Yeah, maybe ten percent, five percent. I have a little routine where, at every five minute interval when I'm doing my recording, I do like dot for the heart rate, carrot for the mm-hmm. my Doppler, 
little triangle for CO2, whatever. And then I give a breath <laughs> just okay. even if they're spontaneously breathing. Cause, yeah. cause sometimes you'll find that the patient's breathing will be shallow enough that the CO2 wave on your capnograph will say, say it's 40 and you feel perfect about it. And then you give a, an actual breath and you find out 68 and you're like, Oh, right. it's much higher than it's actually. And why, why does that happen? Does that happen because of dead space in your tubes? Does that yeah, happen just more for or less. other reasons? And not in the sense, not necessarily because of um, equipment dead space, like like an excessively long tube, although that can definitely contribute, but also anatomical dead space like your trachea. Like if they're just not taking a huge breath that's that's adequate to essentially equilibrate with all of the air in your lungs and they're kind of taking just small breaths, they will they might be breathing at a level of 70, but only 40 is coming out. And so then... Um, and then you wouldn't really find out until you breathe for the patient. Yeah, that's a that's annoying. Yeah. So again, if I have a lot of things going on, it's a very complicated case. I can't say I do that super routinely. But if I'm just bored, not bored, but less not as panicky. Not as panicky, right? Um, I I just tend to incorporate that little mini check into my my five minute uh, pattern. So I think from here. I think we can move on to the gastrointestinal effects yeah. of opioids, which is definitely a, a big process with our patients. So the severity of your GI side effects is really going to be drug dependent, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I would say in general, opioids tend to cause a slowing of that forward propulsion of the GI tract. And in the small intestine and such, we call that ileus. And that's actually where a lot of the nausea or some of the nausea comes from in opioids is if you think about slowing of the intestines, things kind of slow down, that's ileus. If you think of slowing of the stomach and things just kind of collect and back up, that makes you nauseous. And then, and then they tend sometimes vomit. So where do opioids come into play when you're dealing with possible GI surgeries, like a, a foreign body or, or a scoping or something? I mean, are those, do yeah. you have to be selective in, in what drugs you're using? I guess, I mean, at some point, you still have to provide some level analgesic, and I guess you can start to be a little bit creative by using, um, there's this thing called a TAP block, T-A-P, where it's a local regional technique that blocks the sensation to the ventral abdomen. It's becoming quite the vogue thing, although I believe that you probably need an ultrasound to help you put needle placement. There's no motor there to use a nerve stim appropriately and your risk of going into the abdomen can be kind of high and it does take some practice to learn how to do that but at some point you you have to provide some level of analgesia and the opioids are kind of the best thing that we have but it does mean that even post-operatively we try not to hammer them with really high doses of things and we might choose other drugs that have less significant effects like buprenorphine if you think about that dog that's been post-operatively sitting in the ICU for four days after its foreign body surgery and will not stop gurging. That's, we tend to, well, A, reach for prokinetic like Reglan, but also we really try to back down on their on their opioids because some just might be more sensitive than others. Is there a scale that you picture in your mind as, all right, this one is the most GI causing, uh, you know, symptom Drug opioid drug. versus, you know, this one is last on the list, is morphine number one, and then morphine is, is number one. Oh. you know, where does it go from there? I would say morphine and then hydro and then methadone, fentanyl, and buprenorphine are all about the same. I'm not sure if I would put buprenorphine ahead of methadone and fentanyl or behind. 
because it is a partial mu, and we'll talk about what that means later, but it definitely has an effect. <laughs> um, but I definitely morphine. I think when I think of morphine, I think of it coming out both ends. It's like yeah, absolutely. Terrible. I think I've even seen it in the emergency room that you know if you have something that or you're 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 trying to have a dog vomit something up and you don't have access to morphine. Yeah, you can just give morphine. Morphine. <sighs> it works. It's, it's effective. I know. It just is so gross. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty common to to pop a dog with you know morphine as a pre med and then 20 minutes later there is yeah. absolutely vomit in the cage. I don't think I've ever use morphine as okay. a systemic drug. Well, maybe that's why. Maybe. Yeah. But, um, ugh. actually, that's a lie. I did it once in the dog, and we did it at the large animal hospital. And morphine in large animals is pretty much the only full mu that you have um, access to. And, yeah, it was a mess. Yep. And the dog is still trying to attack us while it's vomiting and diarrhea all over us in a 14 by 14 padded stall hashtag vet med exactly he was so angry we didn't have muzzles we were trying to do this in the in a scenario that was not built for it so it was definitely a a rough thing that's how we learn yeah exactly i think the last thing that i want to talk about is this concept of max bearing and we're going to do rounds on the concept of mac and what it means to be max bearing but the short story is opioids in general are known for reducing your inhalant requirement so and I think that's why we tend to use really high doses in surgery is because we're not just trying to, to stop pain transmission, which we are, but we also are trying to balance our anesthetic protocols so that we're, we can minimize the amount of isoflurane we're using. Mm-hmm. And the opioids in general are very potent, dose-dependent, but very potent max-bearing effect. So if I have a very sick dog that's very hypotensive, I'm thinking of like a gallbladder mucosal, something super sick, I can almost turn off my gas and really turn up my fentanyl and just let my fentanyl keep the patient asleep. Yeah. Especially if they're cardiovascularly very compromised. We talked earlier how fentanyl is pretty neutral, and that's uh, so that's a nice um, component, or it's, it's something I almost always reach for when I have a really sick animal. So by using opioids or different levels of opioids or even different opioids, we can reduce the amount of ISO that we obviously have to maintain them under a proper plane of anesthesia. Yeah. And opioids are not the only drug that has this effect, but it's one of the most common and it's a very well-known effect and it would be a, a shame to not mention it when we're talking about opioids. Do you see opioids do anything to, uh, to body temperature or to thermoregulation? Actually, yes. It's really cool that you brought that up. So um, what you see is once you give an opioid, they actually start panting. And that is the whole reason why that happens is because opioids go to the hypothalamus, the part in the brain that affects thermoregulation, and actually lowers the set point. And so then the dogs start panting because they are trying to lower their body temperature to their new low set point. So if normally that are 100, now they want to be Mm 98.5. And so they pant themselves down to 98.5. It's interesting that we think about that even though five minutes ago we were just talking about how their respiratory depressants, yes. but yet we can also see them pant. I know. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> it's a game. It's Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think the only reason I brought it up is because when I think of, uh, you know, your cold dog in the wards, it's the dog who has been on fentanyl for 12 hours yeah. and hasn't had a temperature check, and 
for some reason they're they're sensitive to the fentanyl and they're at 95 degrees yeah I mean, that can be a combination of a lot of things. That's an unfortunate situation, and they tend to still be really lethargic and sleepy because their body temperature is 95. They're almost hibernating. But um, the other interesting thing with thermoregulation is that in cats, certain opioids are known for causing hyperthermia. Right. Um, I think of hydromorphone as one. I think of buprenorphine as a big one mm-hmm. in cats. I don't tend to see that with butorphanol, methadone, or fentanyl. Okay. So... Even though buprenorphine is great as an analgesic in cats, it's not uncommon for them to then get to a body temperature of 105, 106 postoperatively. Yeah. And that can sometimes just be off-putting because then you're putting fans on the cat, right. you know, taking all the blankets out, things like and that. And leading to other issues. Yeah, exactly. And the general reason for that is very much unknown. Um, it seems – so there are some papers that suggest that the colder the cat gets in surgery, the greater the reflexive hyperthermia later. I see. Although you tend to see this hyperthermia in cats even without them being anesthetized. Just a cat sitting in the wards that's getting intermittent buprenorphine, sometimes you'll go in there and the temperature is 104. Okay. And it's not because he has pneumonia or some other problem. It's just the – Side opioid. effect of the drug. So, yeah. All right. So – that was a lot about drug side effects and everything, although I think it was pretty comprehensive and pretty helpful. So I think we should move on to talking about the drugs kind of in their, let's say, subfamilies. And that is pretty much three main groups. So you have your, your full mu agonists and your partial mu agonists, and then your kappa agonist mu antagonists. I think first we probably need to define those terms just so everyone understands what we're talking about. So an agonist is a drug that binds to a receptor and stimulates some effect. That can be, that is true of neurotransmitters, it's true of pretty much anything, but any kind of an agonist, if you think of a molecule that goes to an enzyme, sits in the enzyme, and then triggers the enzyme to do something. So it's something that's causing a reaction. Exactly. Then you have an antagonist, which is a molecule that comes up to the enzyme. It sits on the enzyme, and it does nothing. It prevents an effect. And it's important to know that that is different from an inverse agonist, and this is getting super nerdy. An inverse agonist is a molecule that goes to the enzyme and causes an opposite effect. And so... I mean, those actually are not super common. So an antagonist just blocks the effect of the actual agonist um, and doesn't actually stimulate an anti. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like your agonist causes a reaction. Your inverse agonist would cause the reverse effect almost, but then your antagonist is basically blocking any kind of a reaction. Exactly. It prevents anything. And then you have your partial agonists, which we haven't buprenorphine falls in this category and this is a molecule that goes to the receptor and stimulates an effect but only stimulates let's say like half effect it's just lazy it's lazy yeah and so it just doesn't stimulate the enzyme to do its full secondary action it just it sits there it blocks other things from binding on and then you get like havesy got it so and i think that'll be make a little bit more sense as we talk about opioids and even other drugs in the future so our full mu agonist is probably what we use most commonly for pain management. So 
that collection will include your morphine, your hydromorphone, your methadone, and your fentanyl. And of course, morphine, like we said before, being the OG, it actually touches on all three. Um, but it, in the sense of it's a full mu agonist that it stimulates that receptor to do its full job. Completely. Exactly. And we already talked about the differences in the GI effects, how morphine and hydro tend to cause the most GI upset, whereas fentanyl and methadone don't cause as much nausea and vomiting, although they are still culprits for ileus and slowing of the GI tract. And then the other thing to discuss is the differences in onset and durations. So morphine is actually our slowest onset. And the interesting thing about morphine compared to every other opioid in our toolkit is that morphine has the least fat solubility of the group. And when you think of the brain, right, it's one giant thing of fat. So the morphine, no matter how you give it, if you give it IV, IM, sub-Q, the actual limiting step for morphine getting into the brain is that crossing the, the blood-brain barrier and the fat there. And so it's actually the slowest to move across where the others are much faster. Now, does that mean that it lasts longer than the others? So if you put it in the epidural space, yes. right, then it lasts the longest. Well, it lasts like 12 to 24 hours. Whereas fentanyl, fentanyl is very quick, you know, so it, it just tends to leave the epidural, um, the, that epidural space. So morphine, I use it all the time as a epidural kind of analgesic, and I combine it with a local anesthetic, whereas uh, fent- I don't usually use fentanyl in that sense. And I'm not a big fan of morphine as an as a systemic analgesic because of the intense vomiting and nausea. It also can cause histamine release, so you really want to avoid them with mast cell tumors. It can cause uh, itchiness or pruritus. Um, so, yeah, I'm just not a huge fan okay. of morphine. Okay, so it's... So it is good, but it's got some side effects. But yeah. you also have you also have some other choices. Exactly. But if it's what you have, then it's what we use. Right. So morphine, in terms of surgical analgesia, probably lasts one to two hours. And that's our slowest our slowest onset, but also our shortest duration when used systemically. But then when you think of fentanyl, fentanyl is our fastest. It's our race car. Yep. So onset time is one to three minutes. It's really quick. And then a single bowl is only lasts you 15 or 20 minutes. Yeah. And so that's why fentanyl is typically used as an infusion and not really as intermittent boluses. Yep. And that's that's common from my experience. We'll see a lot of fentanyl CRIs postoperatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also sometimes if, if a dog is just not uh, a good patient for a CRI, we'll switch them over to a, like a methadone Q4, Q5 uh, yeah. type deal. Oh, Q5s. Who's doing odd numbers? Too much. Sorry. <laughs> well, we can do Q6. Um, but then, uh, and then hydromethadone are kind of middle of the roads. So onset of time, three to five-ish minutes, and duration about two to four hours. So with those guys, I tend to redose them every two hours in surgery. So fentanyl is infusion, so it's constant. Methadone, hydro, Q2 hours, and then morphine, Q1-ish, one and a half hours, if you're using it systemically. And then we can also talk about this class of drugs in terms of their relative potency. And this just really, it's a little bit more theoretical, but it helps you understand your dosing. So if we consider morphine to be the standard, so we'll say, we'll compare everything to one mg per kg of morphine, and that's a pretty hefty dose. If you think of hydromorphone, that's about five to 10 times as potent. So one mg per kg of morphine is about 0.1 mg per kg of hydro. I find that for surgery, I can get away with 0.05, half that. And 
especially with a local block or even without, it's usually plenty. Then methadone is actually a little bit less potent than hydro. So methadone is only two to three times as potent. So a half make per keg of methadone is equal to one make per keg of morphine. And I find that for surgery, 0.2.3 is about fine. So 0.2.3 of methadone is about the same as 0.05 of hydro, which is the same as about 0.5 makes per keg of, of morphine. This is just a way to think about it. Fentanyl is 50 to 100 times as potent. So five, without, so that would be, so 10 micrograms per keg of fentanyl, that's 0.01, is, would be about the same as one make per keg of morphine. So, and because we're, I hate talking about 0.00s, right. 0.0, whatever, yeah. I would just rather talk in micrograms. So 10 is 0.01. And so I tend to use as a loading dose, five mics per keg, which is 0.005. And that's about half make per keg of, of morphine. So everyone's kind of on the same page. Now, if you're using the same relative dose throughout all of these different, um, you know, full mu opioids, mm-hmm. uh, Aside from the GI side effects that you can see, I mean, do you have a preference as far as, I guess, what we would call pain control? Do you see... Well, I think it all, I think they're all pretty equivalent, right? That's the whole point of using relative dosing. But in I, there are some that I think come with a little bit more titratability. So if I'm, if I'm thinking that a patient under anesthesia might have a kind of a up and down type of experience... Mm-hmm where there's certain really painful parts and other times that are less, or I'm not sure how this patient's going to go. And so we'll just see how it goes. You know, um, I like having fentanyl because fentanyl, I can turn up, I can turn down. I'm never really committed to anything because um, the duration of fentanyl itself it's is so quick. short. Yeah. Whereas, and if you ever have access to Remy fentanyl, that's like super fancy, but in Canada, this, I think it's actually cheaper than regular fentanyl, but Remy fentanyl is instant on instant off and talk about, adjustability it's kind of crazy yeah so that to me guides my decision between them more so than anything else will you ever make a decision based on the specific kind of surgery uh a orthopedic surgery versus a soft tissue surgery versus a neurological surgery no not necessarily again it it depends on it's, it's almost always like a logistical choice or again how much i think that patient was going to be variable uh or have or even if I'm expecting the dog to be anesthetically, cardiovascularly impaired, and so I'm going to be dealing with a lot of hypotension because they are very sick and ill, then I might reach for fentanyl first just because I know... It's going to leave the system quicker. It's going to leave the system quicker, but then also I can turn it up really high and turn off my ISO if I need it. Which I guess theoretically you could do with hydro, you could do with methadone. It's just, well, no, I've never really pra- I've never really tried that. Yeah. The... I mean, there's always reversals if at the end of the day you need to take it away. But I like the titratability of having a fentanyl CRI. So I think that probably drives my my choices more than anything else. And the last thing about fentanyl to mention before we move on to the other, the, well, the last two opioids that we have, is that fentanyl is so po- potent as a sedative that it's probably the only anesthetic that you can truly use as an anesthetic induction agent. And so... When we have a super sick patient, super debilitated, you can, well, you need a very quiet room. We usually turn off the lights. Everyone knows that when they walk into surgery prep area, if the lights are off, it is inside voices. Shh. Yeah, exactly. Induction, we say induction voices, please. <laughs> I think you've nerds. given me the dirty eye a couple times. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's no laughing. There's no conversations. Right. It is, 
you know, once the dog is intubated and it's all set, sure, sure. the lights go on and yeah. activity can resume. But fentanyl induction is reserved for the most sick of the group. And you are avoiding the cardiovascular side effects of propofol, of alfaxlone, of ketamine. Now, if you're using a big slug of fentanyl to induce something, are you more concerned about the respiratory depressive effects? But I know I'm intubating them. I, so I need them to be sedated enough that they will tolerate their endotracheal tube, but not necessarily, um, but, and that's, that's all I need them to be. So some amount of depression of, of that type of laryngeal reflex and things is necessary. And then I'm going to intubate them. And then I'm just going to, if I need to assist them with some spontaneous, with some, with the rebreathing bag, I can just do that. Yeah. You know, with, with propofol, you know, it's going to cause respiratory depressant, but you know that Theoretically, it should resume relatively quickly. Right. With fentanyl, it, it could theoretically last a little bit longer. Possibly. I mean, with the bigger doses. Where I would say for my fentanyl inductions, I tend to be around the 10 mic per kg yeah. dose as my, quote, induction dose. Okay. All right. So moving on, the next drug to talk about is buprenorphine. So buprenorphine is a partial mu agonist. So it still stimulates that mu receptor, which mm. is great. But... It does not cause that enzyme to do its full effect. So a couple things. That means less nausea. Cool. Less respiratory depression. Also pretty cool. Also less pain relief, which can be a little bit less cool. So, but if you don't have a super painful patient, yeah. then I think it's a totally adequate approach. Or if you're able to balance it with other things, like a local regional block. Right. Um, like if you're doing a TPLO, if you combine that with an epidural, that's awesome. Um, but if it's your primary analgesic and you have nothing else to, to work with that, no NSAIDs, no nothing else, I mean, depending on the procedure, it can be a little sad. Is there a problem with buprenorphine um, overpowering the receptors at all where, you know, let's say you give buprenorphine, are you then limited in what you can do afterwards since... Uh, you can't mix buprenorphine with potentially other opioids? Yeah, I mean, even though it stimulates the enzyme to do less, let's say, than a full mu agonist like fentanyl, the binding affinity, so how tightly that molecule binds to that enzyme, is actually stronger than pretty much any other opioid that we have. Um, it's not necessarily done by design, or maybe they did, but it essentially kicks off other opioid molecules off of that receptor and it instead inserts itself and it refuses to move. So buprenorphine can actually be very challenging to reverse with even naloxone or overpower it with other opioids until the the molecule itself kind of drifts away and gets metabolized and moves on. So what you're saying is don't give buprenorphine if you think there's a chance that at some point down the road you're going to want to go with something a little bit more potent. Exactly. So if you know that your patient will be going to surgery, like let's say you're in an overnight ER situation and you know that they're probably going to do the surgery at eight o'clock tomorrow morning and it's now six o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. maybe don't give that buprenorphine, maybe consider a drug like methadone. Okay. And doesn't have a super GI type effect, so you're not as worried about nausea, regurge, especially in that, in that painful patient. But then you're also kind of giving the anesthesia group or whoever's running anesthesia the most flexibility yeah. to help manage that. Uh, just in case we somebody did give it, what is the 
what's your time frame as far as how long it's going to take to really wear off until you can consider another drug? Hmm, you can try uh, six to eight hours is what they say. If a drug was given at 8 a.m. with 8 a.m. treatments, I think any time after noon is usually fine. And then if I instead have to use the buprenorphine, if I can't combine it with a local regional technique, sometimes I will just redose it, like do another half dose of buprenorphine right. to kind of piggyback on. And I was like, fine, if this is what we're going with, we're going to commit to it. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't want to get too crazy with your buprenorphine doses because using a crazy dose, like if usually you would use 0.02 mix per keg, if you go crazy and you do 0.2 mix per keg, you're not necessarily in a better place. So just because it's a less potent drug, don't automatically assume that you can give a multitude of, of yeah, increased like, doses. Yeah, like 10 times the right. dose. It's not, it's not really going to work out for you. Yep. You'll probably, if anything, just see more like hyperesthetic type weird locomotor issues um, than anything else. So, And then I think our last one to talk about is butorphanol. And we use butorphanol all the time. I think any time that we're doing a sedated procedure, we're reaching for butorphanol. My general rule is if there's no scalpel blade involved, mm -hmm. I'm cool with butorphanol. Once you pull out a scalpel blade, we need to think a little bit better. So... But the other part about butorphanol that some people tend to forget is that butorphanol is actually pretty short-acting. It only really lasts about 45 minutes-ish. So if you know that you have a prolonged prep time leading up to your surgery, let's say on a TPLO, that, I mean, even in our most efficient days between taking radiographs, prepping, clipping, especially with that really challenging like lab hair, and then doing our local block, moving in, getting the surgeon. The surgeon has to arrange themselves. By that whole time, we're talking at least an hour. Yeah. So from the time you've poked the dog in the butt with the with the butorphanol right. to your actual cutting time, it's almost an hour and a half. It's gone anyway. It's gone anyway. And so you can just give your full meal at that point. And then especially if we're using a drug like hydromorphone, it's much less expensive for our bigger dogs. It, and it does a sufficient job, especially when we have a nice femside block for our TPLOs. Doing starting with the torb, and then and then giving the hydro later, we can actually avoid that nausea with the hydro. Right. Which so is cool. right. So instead of giving your your full mu right off the bat, and then dealing with the side effects from that as the pre medication, you can go with something a little bit lighter, uh, not not as much side effects, and yeah. then move into your your full your full mu after you're actually yeah before you actually cause pain with a scalpel blade yeah or a bone saw as they use right the um. And it seems to work out pretty well for us, which is kind of cool. It's a, especially during the opioid crisis, it was one of the ways that we were kind of getting by. Yeah. And I hate having vomiting dogs everywhere. Yeah. I always feel so bad for them. I mean, I don't, I hate vomiting. Right. I can't imagine they enjoy it. Yeah. Then you're dealing with airways too. And oh. there's always that risk. Yeah. I know some people say like, oh yeah, it's great to empty the stomach and then, and then they fall asleep, which may be true. But then what if they aspirate? as they're, quote, emptying their stomach, and then, yeah, you feel Ugh, pretty terrible. It gets messy. Yeah, I don't like cleaning it up either. <laughs> yeah, but especially when you're just taking radiographs and, or just doing chest rads or something of that nature, yeah. I think butorphanol is totally fine, totally appropriate. The other cool thing is, so butorphanol is a kappa agonist, mu antagonist, meaning so it stimulates the kappa, and it prevents any change or in inhibits that action at the mu receptor. And it can actually be used as a reversal agent. So if you have a patient that's super zonked after having fentanyl and such and just does not want to recover from anesthesia, you can give a small dose of butorphanol 
to reverse that effect of your opioid. And that's a pretty popular choice for, for some people. Um, but you also still have naloxone, the yeah. actual reversal agent. Now, does that mean that if you gave a full mu after giving, almost immediately after giving a Torbios, I don't know why you would, but you know, theoretically, mm-hmm. if you did that, would that mean that the effects from the full mu wouldn't actually be as efficient oh. as they usually would be because you have Torb on board? I think so. Okay. I think so. I was sometimes with the whole complication in the soup situation. Yeah. If, sometimes if you're putting agonists and antagonists together, especially in one syringe of sorts, it just gets complicated. Yeah. And I mean, if you're using buprenorphine later, we know that buprenorphine has a longer onset time, like 15, 20 minutes. So I guess it kind of makes sense. Although it's still probably going to overpower your Torb anyways, because it's a stronger affinity drug. So I'm not sure huh. what we're doing. It's just complicated. Yeah. So I, I, I like to keep it simple. And, um, but naloxone, I think, so the full reversal dose is typically 0.04 mg per K. That's what you'll see on your, like, CPR mm. sheets. Um, and I tend to actually use it as, for those patients that just don't want to wake up, some people reach for TORB. I tend to reach for naloxone. Oh, I see. So instead of using 0.04, I use 0.002. Um, so it's 2 mics per K versus 40 mics per K. Yeah. Um, just the tiniest dose. Give it 2, 3, 4, 5 minutes somewhere. And then you'll just find that the dogs just pop, pop up. They're not painful, but they, um, but it just takes the edge off of them. And so it's just a tiny little micro reversal. So it's not fully reversing them. Yeah. I mean, the CPR situation, oh, yeah. Give them oh, of thing. course. Right. But, um, but, yeah, some of them you can tell are just having a serious opioid hangover. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's usually the dose I try, 0.002 to 0.005. Just two to five mics per cake for those of us who hate O's. But um, yeah, so I, I think that's, that's the whole show. So just to recap pretty quickly, opioids, cardiovascularly, pretty neutral, especially when you combine it with glyco. Respiratory depression, it's a thing, but if you just assist them with your either handbagging or a ventilator, it's less of a thing. And though it's probably not a thing if you're in the wards and you're using much less doses, it's probably more of an anesthetic related thing. Mm-hmm. GI effects, super serious. When you think of bulldogs, your brachycephalics, we are very cautious about them vomiting. Aspiration. Nausea. Yeah, exactly. Aspiration yeah. is a huge deal. So I tend to avoid morphine, hydro, especially in these guys, and mm-hmm. try to go for the more GI neutral. Um, and then knowing the different categories. So your full mu agonists, those are your fully potent, your fully analgesic drugs. That's your morphine, your hydro, your methadone, and your fentanyl. Mm -hmm. And they all kind of belong to the same family, but usually the thing that separates them is their speed. Fentanyl being super fast, Mm -hmm. and whereas like hydro and methadone are a little bit slower, like two to four hours versus that 15 minutes. Then you have your buprenorphine. It's a partial agonist, so it sits on the receptor, sits very tightly, Mm -hmm. but it only affects that receptor, let's say 50 to 60%. And then it's and then it doesn't leave, and that one hangs out for a long time, six yeah. to eight hours. It's really hard to overpower it. And then lastly, you have butorphanol, not a super potent analgesic, but it's pretty good for sedation. Is there anything that uh, the technicians or doctors or staff can take into their clinics, you know, with this info? Yeah, I think. Well, a lot of it, I feel like a lot of drug choices, especially in the current climate, comes down to what's available. And so I think understanding that. Buprenorphine is probably fine. It's probably what most people have for their surgeries. But trying to be 
conscientious that you're combining with something else, like an NSAID, a local block, something of that nature, and knowing that it's very hard to reverse. Also, knowing that we can give equ like equipotent doses of the different mu agonists, but also being conscious that you're not kind of overdosing. I, I find that a lot of times we give really big doses of opioids, which is probably fine. They're generally well tolerated, but to me, it's kind of more expensive. It's a little wasteful, especially if you're at a shortage anyways. And yeah. I'm not sure if your patient's actually benefiting or if you're just starting to get into that um, side effect range. So, but uh, yeah, I think, I think that's our big takeaways here. That's good. Yeah. I really appreciate everyone listening. And I hope everyone's having something that, they, uh, that they're learning and that they can bring to their teams. And please feel free to share this with your teammates. And let us know what you guys want to hear and what you want to talk about. And uh, any feedback and suggestions are, are great. And if you are enjoying what you're listening to, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And let's keep it going. But um, for that, have a good day. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone.